to Historian Explaining, a historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. These lectures are on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, and other platforms. And if by any chance you can help to keep them coming, please go to my Patreon page, also under Historian Explaining, and become a patron. If you are a patron, you should know that I haven't posted material on this podcast in some time, mainly because... I was away for more than two weeks with my family traveling through Great Britain. And you can go, and if you become a patron on my Patreon page, you can hear my observations about the sites that we saw in England. But what I'm going to talk about now is Scotland. So we went to Scotland for about six days. We traveled through the Southern Highlands to Edinburgh, and even down south of Edinburgh to the border areas. So we saw many different parts of the country. And I'm going to talk a bit about some things that we saw along the way, but mainly I'm going to talk about the general outline of the history of Scotland, how Scotland has become a symbol and sort of taken on a life of its own, in legend and in our modern imagination and about Outlander. So one of the sites where we went was Dune Castle, which is actually just below the line in the Scottish lowlands, in this sort of hilly area just north of Stirling. And this castle is amazingly well-preserved. Huge parts of the main central tower are intact. You can walk through dining halls, the kitchen, bedrooms, up and down narrow stairways. It was built around the year 1400 by the Duke of Albany, who was the regent of Scotland and who basically seized control of the government of Scotland while the king was being held captive by the English. So in a way, it's a kind of unofficial royal castle. And apparently what really put Dune Castle on the map for tourists and first made it a popular site to visit was the fact that Monty Python filmed the castle scenes of Monty Python and the Holy Grail in there. So you can see all kinds of scenes that you might remember from the movie. Uh, you can see the settings for them. You can see the Knights of the Round Table dancing on the table and singing about how they eat ham and jam and spam a lot uh, if you use your memory and imagination. But when we went, we found that actually the fame of Dune Castle from Monty Python had been long eclipsed by something else. They, you could still buy coconut shells to clomp together and act like... King Arthur and his knights. But much more than that, there were signs, there were books in the bookshop, there was a whole extra audio tour added into the castle in addition to the normal historical audio tour that all focused on Outlander. 
And Outlander is a series of romance novels that began in the 1980s and are still being written. And now it's also a television series, a cable TV series based on those books. And Dune Castle was practically mobbed with Outlander fans because the castle was used to film, to stand in for Castle Leach, which is a fictitious, supposedly Highland castle, where the main characters of this romance series first meet. And as a tour guide explained to us, the makers of Outlander actually had to hire people to bring earth by hand in baskets up through the narrow gateway into the courtyards of Dune Castle in order to set up uh, ground and build huts and workshops in the courtyard of the castle in order to create the simulacrum of a working, functioning 18th century castle, and then had to carry it all out by hand again. And it's these scenes of the castle as castle of the clan Mackenzie that have given Dune Castle a whole, you might say, third life of fame and importance. So Dune Castle in this way acted as a kind of gateway in itself, a kind of portal connecting the real country of Scotland, which is a real place with social and economic problems and opportunities and complicated politics, and linked it to this sort of fantasy Scotland that you see dramatized most of all in Outlander, probably more than has ever been done before on television, and may have also been seen in some movies like Rob Roy. This alternate fantasy Scotland that you see in Outlander apparently is one where it never rains, so that's part of how you know it's not real. And part of what was so surreal about seeing Dune Castle and other sites like it around the central part of Scotland where we traveled is that we also were kind of in that fantasy alternate Scotland. There's been a long drought and run of sunny, warm weather for months now in Britain, including Scotland. And in a way, this this made it seem almost more like that sort of Alice in Wonderland uh, movie screen version of Scotland. The fact that Scotland has this kind of alternate version of itself, I think, is very important, both for the country itself and for what it reveals about modern people all over the English-speaking world and really all over the industrialized world today, and the sort of fantasies and romance that we like to project onto Scotland. And in order to illustrate what I mean, I'm going to tell you the basic outline of a story, which I hope will be clear enough and not too vague. But this is the basic story. A young English person in their late 20s from southern England, who is fairly smart and capable, and who has been serving for some time in the British Army, but is unsure about their direction and purpose in life, has some time off from their duties, and so they decide to take an excursion into Scotland. When there, they see the beautiful local scenery, the atmosphere, and they meet colorful local characters, 
and learn about the area's Jacobite history. At one point, they decide to go off on a trip alone on foot into the highlands. And after passing through a narrow and dangerous passageway, they are unexpectedly accosted by both British soldiers and Highland warriors, the latter of whom capture them and take them away on horseback to a Jacobite rebel stronghold. Once there at the Jacobite stronghold, they meet and fall in love with a rugged, passionate Highlander, and they find themselves torn and forced to choose between this new Jacobite lover and another suitor that they had met previously, who, like them, is smart, sensible, and capable, if not particularly passionate or enchanting. Eventually, this new Highland lover persuades them to switch loyalties and join in the fight for the Jacobite cause. And in time, they are able to meet Bonnie Prince Charlie, the Jacobite Prince Regent himself. They serve in the triumphant Battle of Prestonpans and in other battles and skirmishes in the course of the Jacobite uprising. But ultimately, defeat at the Battle of Culloden dashes their hopes of remaining together with their Highland lover, and finally they return to England with their more sensible marriage partner and try to build a happy and stable life with them there. So hopefully my listeners should recognize that this, of course, is the basic plot outline of Waverley, the classic 1814 novel by Sir Walter Scott. Waverley was the first historical novel ever published or known to be written. He actually wrote it in 1805, and its subtitle is 60 Years Since. So the full title, if you look at the original editions, is Waverley or Tis 60 Years Since. So Scott was writing about events that had happened just about two to three generations earlier, still in distant but living memory. And he was trying to take significance and meaning out of those barely remembered events. The novel centers on a young English man, Edward Waverley, who comes from the gentry and who is the nephew and presumptive heir of his uncle Everard Waverley, who is the owner of a large estate, Waverley Honor, and who adheres to traditional Tory and Jacobite loyalties. And if you don't know exactly what those things mean, I'll explain some of them a little more later. Waverley does not want to simply live a life of leisure in the shadow of his uncle or of his father, Richard Waverley, who has gone off to Westminster to become a politician and seek advancement in government. And he wants instead to make a name and a place for himself in the world. So he eventually joins a regiment of dragoons, is stationed in Scotland near Dundee. He goes off to visit distant family friends who live in the Scottish lowlands, the Bradwardine family. And when at their estate, he meets Rose Bradwardine, who is the more sensible, intelligent, uh, eligible partner that I mentioned in the synopsis. 
But after the Bradwardine estate is raided by some Highland brigands, he goes off and eventually is taken captive by Clan MacIvor. And among them, he meets the idealistic and passionate Flora MacIvor, who is, you might say, Waverly's personification of the Highlands. Passionate, idealistic, exacting, and who eventually ultimately decides that Edward Waverly is simply not good enough for her. But nonetheless, Waverly is persuaded to join into the 1745 uprising. Events, of course, spiral far out of his control or anticipation. But ultimately, uh, despite losing disastrously at Culloden, he is pardoned and is able to return to England and settle at Waverley Honor with his bride, Rose Bradwardine. So, as I said, Waverley was the first ever historical novel, and it really brought Scotland to the attention of England. So Scotland, for political and economic reasons, had been neglected, had been seen as a kind of embarrassing backwater, even by many Scots themselves. So when you look at famous Scots from the 18th century, like Adam Smith and David Hume, they tended to dissociate themselves from Scotland, and especially from the Highlands, which they saw as embarrassingly primitive and backwards. David Hume didn't call himself a Scot. He referred to himself as a North Briton. And many Scottish colonists in America, I found in my own research, referred to themselves the same way. They didn't even want to be thought of as Scots. So Scotland was really ignored and swept under, under the rug, really for almost 200 years when Waverley came out. And it caused something of a stir, and Walter Scott followed it up with more novels about Scotland, especially novels of romance and adventure. And interestingly, Jane Austen actually read Waverley shortly before she died, and she wrote to her niece, quote, Walter Scott has no business to write novels, especially good ones. It is not fair. He has fame and profit enough as a poet and should not be taking the bread out of other people's mouths. I do not like him and do not mean to like Waverley, if I can help it, but fear I must. And in a way, this makes a lot of sense because Waverley, although it's romantic and it's a tale of adventure, it also has a lot of similar kind of wit satire of social observation, a lot like Jane Austen. And so it had this kind of charm to it that brought it to enormous audiences that probably never previously were interested in anything about Scotland or its landscapes or its history. And I think that Waverley and the other novels that came after it really created what I call the romance of Scotland in the sense of both a mystique a mystique of ancientness, of mystery, of magic, and also a basic storyline, a storyline that Outlander perfectly mimics. So there are, of course, differences in Outlander. The most obvious one, which you may have noticed I was concealing in my synopsis of the storyline, is that the character of Waverly is replaced by a woman, a woman named Claire Randall. 
and the lovers that she has to choose between are two men. So the sexes are inverted, but the storyline is remarkably the same. So let me pose the question, why? What does this mean and what do we make of this? It's possible that Diana Gabaldon, the author of Outlander, may have read Waverly. I also think it's possible she didn't. And as far as I know, I don't think anyone has ever specifically asked her. It can almost go unnoticed how the two stories are such perfect mirror images of one another and really capture so many of the same ideas and associations. So why is it that this same basic story, this same romance of Scotland is being told again and finding an enormous new audience all over the world? Well, I think in order to make sense of this, we should look back at actual Scottish history for a few minutes. So I'm going to try to give a basic outline summary description of the history of Scotland. And this is, of course, a history of thousands of years, so this is only going to be sketchy. I'm going to leave a lot out. But basically, we can say that there's been some degree of continuity around a coherent social geographic unit that we can now call Scotland. So all of Britain, including Scotland, was inhabited by prehistoric peoples, people of the, the so-called beaker culture, and people who built megalithic stone circles similar to Stonehenge. So there are sort of smaller equivalents to Stonehenge in various places in Scotland. Uh, the one that we see in Outlander called Craig Nadoon is fictitious. It doesn't really exist, but there are others like it. The earliest written records we have that say anything about this region and its inhabitants are Roman. The Romans, of course, conquered most of Britain. They called it Britannia. But they left the northern third or so of the island unoccupied. They called this area Caledonia. That name is of uncertain origin. It might mean forested country, but it was inhabited by various tribes and chiefdoms that the Romans were unable to conquer and unable to pacify. So they ultimately simply built walls across the island trying to defend themselves. Uh, you, you, of course, can see echoes of this in Game of Thrones as well. We don't know who most of these peoples were, but the particular large important group was the Picts. And the Picts are very mysterious. They were probably Indo-European. They may or may not have been Celtic. We don't, I don't think we really know for sure. And we don't know what their language was and we don't know what they called themselves. The name Pict is Latin and it means painted. So they were people who apparently painted and tattooed their bodies. And a lot of them lived in small circular wooden fortresses some of which were built over rivers and lakes, but that's about all we know. And particularly after the Romans withdrew from Britannia in the 4th and 5th centuries, the Picts really controlled most of Caledonia. However, shortly after, in the 6th century, a lot of Celtic people, especially Celts who were called Gaels from Ireland, began to migrate over from Ireland into Caledonia, into this area. And they established a sort of confederacy of Celtic chiefdoms along the western coast, which they called Del Rieda. 
So you had basically a, a somewhat coherent kingdom in the east called Pictland, or the Pict country, and this Celtic confederation of Delrida in the west. Shortly after the creation of this Celtic or Gaelic confederacy, a Christian missionary called Columba also migrated, following on their heels, from Ireland into Caledonia and established an abbey or monastery on the island of Iona and used Iona as a sort of headquarters for missionizing the whole country and founding new monasteries and using monasteries as bases to evangelize and Christianize the whole region. And he laid the foundations for a basically Celtic form of Christianity. So rather than being centered on bishops and dioceses like Roman Catholic areas, instead it was a Christian network centering on abbeys and abbots who were the main leaders of the Christian world. When my family traveled and took a tour around the Southern Highlands, one of the places we went was Dunkeld, which has a very old medieval cathedral, what was once a cathedral, and it's on the site of an old abbey founded by St. Columba and his followers. And it's important in the Christian history of the country because it was one of the places that housed, was sort of a safe house for the remains and relics of St. Columba that they wanted to protect from Viking raids. And this made it a very important holy site. And if you go there today, you can see that the cathedral is not centered, is not sited on a plaza in the center of town. Rather, it's tucked away in a sort of grove off at the edge of town. And that's typical of these very old Scottish churches that came from abbeys. So gradually in the 6th, 7th centuries, Christianity spread, but it continued to be politically fragmented until in the 9th century, a king called Kenneth MacAlpin managed to unify the Pictish kingdom together with the Celtic chiefdoms of Delrida. And we don't know a lot about who he was or how he did it. He may have been Pictish, he may have been part Pictish and part Gaelic. He may have learned some Gaelic customs, maybe the Gaelic language. But one way or another, he persuaded these various chiefdoms and kingdoms to unite, probably under the pressure of Viking raids. So Vikings were attacking and colonizing all around the coast of this country, and this probably forced the various kingdoms to band together and form a unified kingdom that could defend itself. So once Kenneth MacAlpin unified these chiefdoms, it started to use the name Alba. So it wasn't called Pictland, it wasn't called Gaelland or anything like that, but they adopted this new name of Alba, and gradually the people of Alba came to be referred to as Scots. And Scot actually is also, like Caledonia and like Pict, it's an old Latin word. And apparently it's a word that the Romans sometimes used to refer to particular Celtic tribes in Ireland. So early on, if you go back before the time of Kenneth MacAlpin, when someone refers to a Scot, they're usually talking about an Irish person. And there's actually a very famous, important early medieval philosopher called John the Scot, or Johannes Scotus. And he was from Ireland. But after Kenneth MacAlpin, the people of Alba begin to use this term Scot in a blanket way to refer to all the people 
of this new kingdom, regardless of whether they came from Pictish or Gaelic or other ancestries. So this kingdom of Alba or Scotia or Scotland was ruled by a series of several royal dynasties all through the Middle Ages. It experienced a significant degree of stability and some modest prosperity, although it was still comparatively a small, more poor and less significant kingdom on the outer edge of Europe. Uh, Queen Margaret in the 11th century brought Roman Catholic reforms. So she was English and Hungarian, and she married a king of Scotland, and she brought clergy with her and instituted a system of governance and worship more along the Roman and Latin lines rather than the old Celtic forms. And if you go to Edinburgh Castle, as we did, you can actually see the oldest remaining building in Edinburgh, in all of Edinburgh, which is a small chapel built at the behest of Queen Margaret. And since it was regarded as a holy building, it was able to survive all kinds of wars and fires that destroyed all other parts of the castle over the years. So after these reforms, after the unification under Kenneth MacAlpin and after the reforms of Queen Margaret, the eastern and western parts of the country were able to meld together, more or less. You no longer had a Gaelic versus Pictish divide, but Gaelic became the sort of common folk language of the whole country, and instead a different divide. There was a realignment and a different divide opened up that is still important today. And that's the divide between the highlands and the lowlands. So if you look at a map of Scotland, you can draw a diagonal line running almost right through the middle of the country from about Aberdeen in the northeast, slashing down to about Glasgow on the west coast. And above that line, you have old volcanic topography. So extremely rocky, rugged terrain, craggy hills, cliffs, narrow mountain passes and valleys called glens. And below that line, you have the lowlands, which is mostly rolling hills, wide valleys, more rivers, and a great deal of what's now farmland. And significant differences in ways of life developed between the highlands and the lowlands. People in the highlands had to live mainly through animal husbandry, through grazing cattle, sometimes sheep, through small farming and gardening, through fishing. Whereas in the lowlands, you had more productive agriculture and you had larger towns growing eventually into cities, Edinburgh and Glasgow being the two main cities in the sort of central lowland belt. And you had more overseas trade. So the lowlands become more connected to the rest of Europe and particularly to England. And many people in the lowlands take up the English language and many still to this day speak a form, a sort of regional dialect of Middle English called Scots. So in all sorts of ways, in food, in dress, in lifestyle, you can see increasing differences between lowlanders and highlanders. The Kingdom of Scotland was generally able to maintain its independence, but there were several attempts by the English to annex and claim the Scottish throne and annex it into England 
over the course of the late Middle Ages as it becomes more strategically, economically significant. And the Scots had to fight off these attempts in a series of wars, especially in the late 1200s and early 1300s. And the big heroes and sort of national symbols that emerged from these wars were first William Wallace, who was a sort of minor nobleman who decided to try to overthrow English rule and went off into the hills and borderlands and recruited ordinary people and tried to wage a kind of guerrilla campaign. He was captured and killed, but this cause of independence was taken up then by the claimant to the throne, Robert the Bruce, who was able to successfully defeat the English and maintain Scottish independence. So these are the two big heroes. And, uh, you know, you may have heard of the movie Braveheart, which at least nominally was about William Wallace. Absolutely every word in that movie is a lie, including the title. So the title Braveheart was not applied to William Wallace. That is a moniker for Robert the Bruce. So everything about it is wrong, and you have to just put it out of your mind. But what's true, at least, is that William Wallace was one of these sort of uh, canonized leaders of this drive for Scottish independence, which was successful after about 1320. Part of how they were able to succeed is that they finagled the support of the Catholic Church and got recognition from the Church as an independent country. In the 1400s, a new dynasty came to the throne called the Stuarts, and they ended up being enormously important, both in Scotland and really for world history. So the Stuarts tried to build up the country. They patronized art and construction. There are many fine stone buildings still today that were designed by the Stuarts and their court. They also form an alliance with France, which is sealed in part by the marriage of Mary, Queen of Scots in the 1500s to the Dauphin or Crown Prince of France. So they create what is today called the Old Alliance, the alliance between Scotland and France, particularly with the goal of containing England and maintaining Scottish independence from England. The English tried to break this alliance and repeatedly in the 1540s and 50s tried to attack Scotland, bombarded Edinburgh to try to force the royal court to agree to a marriage of Mary, Queen of Scots, to Henry's son, Edward. So they wanted to prevent a marriage alliance between Scotland and France and instead bring them into the English sphere. And these attacks were called the rough wooing, right? Wooing meaning when you try to win over a lover. So the rough wooing was unsuccessful. And then following on its heels, there was a spreading Protestant movement in Scotland, especially in the lowlands. And there was a strong, powerful Protestant party in Edinburgh and a sort of cabal of Protestant magnates called the Lords of the Congregation carried out a coup or revolution, you might say, in 1560, where they seized control of the government from Queen Mary and her representatives and seized control of the church in Scotland and reformed it along Calvinist lines. Right? So this is one of these incidents I mentioned before where Calvinism started to go international. And these Scottish leaders, especially led by the preacher and ardent reformer John Knox, basically set themselves up as the de facto government 
and carry out Calvinist reforms. However, many remain Catholic. So many refuse to accept this transition and remain Catholic. So there are Catholic recusants in Scotland, just as there are in England, but there are even a bit more of them in Scotland. So most of the Highlands remain Catholic. They see no reason to follow the lead of these lowland, largely mercantile professional reformers in Edinburgh. And they continue to worship led by sort of traveling Catholic clergy. Also in the lowlands and the border areas, there are also some recusants as well, and notably the Sinclairs of Roslyn, a very important family just south of Edinburgh, who have been nobles and actually originally came from Norman migrants who migrated from Normandy to Scotland. They remain Catholic. And famously, they have a very elaborate, very ornate, unique chapel that they've begun building on their estate. And when the lords of the congregation take over, they begin destroying Catholic chapels and altars that they see as idolatrous in Catholic houses of worship. And they threaten to do the same to the chapel on the estate of the Sinclairs of Roslyn. So in order to protect the chapel, the Sinclairs simply close it up, lock it up, abandon their estate in Roslyn, and withdraw so that hopefully these very you know unique works of art will be protected. And this succeeds, and the chapel is opened hundreds of years later and becomes a sort of landmark of surviving medieval architecture. And it's now, of course, known as Roslyn Chapel. And it's famous, too, because firstly, it was mentioned in the Da Vinci Code, uh, but also it's a really remarkable, unique building. So Mary's son, James, is taken away from her and raised by John Knox and the Lords of the Congregation as a Protestant. And he eventually succeeds her and becomes King of Scotland. So the Stuarts are still in control, and Scotland is still independent, but the king is a Protestant, and he encourages the continuation and advancement of this Calvinist reform movement, and basically the something like the Presbyterian Church of Scotland takes shape. However, in 1603, Queen Elizabeth of England dies. She, of course, has no children, and James is distantly related to her. His mother was Mary, Queen of Scots, who was a distant cousin of Elizabeth. So he is the only sort of heir apparent anyone can turn to. So he is invited to take up the English throne, and he goes down and becomes King of England, and this begins what's called the Personal Union, where England and Scotland are still technically two separate kingdoms with separate parliaments, separate separate legal systems, separate militaries, but with the same king. And reportedly, as James was in his sort of royal carriage being brought down from Edinburgh to London, he had them stop at the border so that he could get out, lie down in the road across the border, and say, in my person, these two kingdoms are one. After he takes up the throne in England, he never goes back to Scotland. He basically governs through his sort of inner ruling circle at Westminster and around London. He's interested in England. It's bigger, it's wealthier, it's more powerful, it's more important on the diplomatic scene. And Scotland 
Although it benefits in some ways from this peaceful relationship with England, it becomes comparatively neglected. And a lot of Scots in the 1600s understandably feel left out, and they want to be part of this growing and prospering English empire of trade and colonization. They want some of that money, those investment opportunities, those offices that are coming from England's imperial power. This doesn't work out very easily. For one thing, there's a rebellion that starts in 1639 because King James's successor, King Charles, tries to impose Anglican Episcopal church forms on Scotland. And supposedly when a priest in Edinburgh starts trying to use the English Book of Common Prayer, a lady throws her stool at him, and this starts a riot, which in turn balloons into a rebellion and a war. And this, it's very complicated, but this ends up touching off a massive civil war in England and Scotland. So there's a lot of animosity, a lot of distrust, a lot of conflict, both between England and Scotland, and also within Scotland, between the lowlands that want to join more closely to England, be part of their world, and the highlands that are suspicious, that want to maintain their Gaelic, Catholic way of life. So the possible benefits of this personal union with England don't really turn out well. These conflicts boil over again in 1688. So the Stuart King in the 1680s was James, and he was a Roman Catholic. He had been raised in France, he was a Catholic, and initially the Protestant sort of ruling circles in London and Edinburgh were willing to put up with him so long as he didn't have children. But once he had a son, that meant there was a Catholic heir and the threat of a possible unending line of Catholic monarchs, and they couldn't abide that. So the sort of ardent Whig Protestants in Parliament join together with allies in the Netherlands and overthrow King James, force him to flee the country, and they replace him with William and Mary. So the, the Dutch prince William of Orange and his wife Mary, who was also a steward but was a Protestant. So this so-called glorious revolution, where the sort of Whig factions overthrew King James, touches off another war, a war where the supporters of James, who come to be called Jacobites from Jacobus, the Latin for James, try to fight back and regain control for what they consider to be the rightful king against these usurpers. And this Jacobite faction eventually fails in this effort. And when we were in Dunkeld, Dunkeld, as it happens, was also a site of a major battle between the Jacobites and the Williamites, the supporters of William and Mary. And the two sides that clashed and destroyed much of the town in this battle were both Scottish. It was not Scotland versus England, at least not in this instance. It was different sides and different loyalties within Scotland. And the Williamites won that particular battle, and the Jacobites were defeated in that war. But they didn't give up, and they actually launched two more major uprisings, trying to take back control of the country for James and his successors, the line of Catholic Stuarts. So there would be another one in 1715 and another in 1745. 
Now, why did Jacobitism continue? Why was it still strong, especially in Scotland? What was at stake? Well, there were a lot of things at stake. Questions of who would control Scotland, how would Scottish land be used, and and even would Scotland be an independent separate kingdom? Because in 1707, when the last Stuart, Protestant Stuart, was on the throne, Queen Anne, the Whig Protestants were worried. They knew that they were going to run out of Protestant Stuarts, and that once Queen Anne died, again without children, that the Jacobites would try to bring the Catholic Stuarts back, James and his son, also James, or his son, Charles, and put them back on the throne. And they were afraid that France, the real enemy of England, would use this as an opportunity and could use Scotland as a sort of base of support to take back control of Scotland or even overthrow the British government and replace them with the Catholic Stuarts. So in order to prevent this, in 1707, the English Parliament passed an Act of Union and managed to sort of finagle and bribe and cajole the Scottish Parliament to also pass an Act of Union. And these Acts of Unions actually merged England and Scotland together into one United Kingdom. That's where the United Kingdom comes from. And what this did is it merged the militaries into one force, it merged the parliaments into one, and this opened up opportunities for Scottish politicians, lawyers, government officials, soldiers, military officers, to get into positions in the British government and especially the British colonies. So this is where, if you're a colonial historian, this is where you see this wave of Scots showing up in the colonies, because now even if they don't have the status or power to become, say, a parliamentary private secretary or a minister in Westminster, they can go become a tax collector or an attorney general or an inspector in the colonies. So Scotland, the advantage for Scotland in the Acts of Union is that they get access to this new wealth and power with the empire, but they lose their independence as a country. They can no longer set laws and policies for themselves. So there was a flood of commercial investment into Scotland after the Acts of Union, and this basically opened the floodgates to higher land value and to enclosure, right? So there had been an enclosure movement going on for centuries already in England, where powerful people could enclose tracts of land that had previously belonged to the commons and buy them up or sell them and convert them to commercial, basically sheep, wool production. And in both England and Scotland, this also meant rising land prices and rising rent and hence evictions of tenants. So it was very difficult for Highlanders, including even the larger clans, to hold on, to hang on to access to land that they used to graze their animals or to farm. And this really inflamed these Jacobite sentiments and the belief among Highlanders that they had to reverse the Act of Union and reverse or at least stop these changes that they saw happening, the commercialization and the loss of communal landholding. So after the Act of Union, the British Parliament also passed a Succession Act saying that no Catholic can ever succeed to the throne. This law technically is still in place, 
only Protestants can succeed to the throne. So all these Catholic Stuarts were right out. And after Queen Anne died, she was succeeded by the Hanover's distant German relatives, who at least were Protestant. They were brought to the throne. That's how you get George I, II, III. They're Hanover's. And this sparks a 1715 uprising of Jacobites, which is fairly large, but sort of disorganized, hard to lead, and it petered out. And then there was another uprising again in 1745 to 46 during a war between England and France. So this was a point where the Jacobites saw a possible military opportunity while London was not defended to rise up and seize control of England and Scotland. So this last Jacobite uprising is the setting and the background for Waverley and for Outlander. The Stuart Prince Regent, a young prince who is considered dashing and handsome, and who's been much romanticized, uh, Prince Charles Edward Stuart, also called Bonnie Prince Charlie, landed in Scotland, rallied the Highland clans and their forces, were able to successfully take Edinburgh and hence control most of Scotland. They achieved the success partly through use of the Highland Charge, where you simply get a bunch of sort of berserk Highland warriors and as soon as your opponents start shooting, you simply charge straight at them and hack them with your swords and axes and maces before they're able to shoot you. The Jacobites were able to advance south into England and conquered as far as the Midlands, reaching down as far south as Derby, basically right in the middle of England. However, at Derby, the Jacobites stopped. The Council of War insisted that they needed French support in order to continue any further to London that they could risk being cornered by British forces in England. And against the wishes of Bonnie Prince Charlie, they decided to turn back and retrench in Scotland. So they returned to Scotland. They were soon chased by the Hanoverian government forces, cornered at Culloden, up in the far north near Inverness. And foolishly, they took up a line out in an open field, basically an undefended flat open field, unlike the rugged terrain where they had fought previously, and they were simply mowed down by cannons. And the Jacobite forces were destroyed. Bonnie Prince Charlie fled in disguise and returned to France and never went to Scotland again. So after the final failure of the Jacobite cause, there was a further flood of enclosures and highland clearances, where the government intentionally seized control of clan lands in the highlands and kicked people out by one means or another, whether eviction or imprisonment or execution, simply depopulated most of the highlands. And if you travel around the highlands today, as we did for a while, you see mountain after mountain, very beautiful, covered in heather, sometimes forested, and with almost no signs of people. You know, there, there simply are, there's simply nobody living there. They're still today depopulated. In addition, the government endeavored to suppress the Scottish way of life, banning the Gaelic language, banning kilts, bagpipes, and so forth. So these sort of symbols of the Highland lifestyle were illegal for decades. And Scotland, after the mid-18th century, continued to be mostly poor, and many people emigrated, emigrated to 
just find opportunities, whether it was take up offices or just get some land or serve as mercenaries in British territories all over the world. So many went to Australia, New Zealand, uh, in some cases the North American colonies, and especially a lot to Canada. And it happens in Dunkeld, we also saw the small townhouse that was the birthplace of the Prime Minister Mackenzie, the first Liberal Prime Minister of Canada. So much of the leaders of Canada come from this Scottish uh, wave of emigration, also Caribbean and, uh, and other parts of Europe too. However, a lot of these emigrants brought with them sort of lore and communal memories of Scotland. So there's this romantic attachment to Scotland, to the sort of romantic lost cause of Jacobitism, coupled with a lot of sympathy for radicalism and republicanism. And you can see this combination, for example, in Robert Burns, who sort of romanticized Scotland, the landscape, the history, and also sympathized with the French Revolution and radical populism. And you can see this, for example, in his poem, Scots Wahay, which is supposed to be an evocation of Robert the Bruce and his speeches to soldiers in the Middle Ages, but it was also kind of a coded uh, rallying cry for radicalism and revolutionism. So Scotland was again largely neglected for about 200 years between the early 1600s and the early 1800s, no monarch visited Scotland. And this only changed in the 1820s after George IV ascended to the British throne. And George IV became the first to visit Scotland in more than 200 years. And when he went, he actually approached Walter Scott and asked him to dress him in appropriate traditional Scottish dress. He ended up appearing in Edinburgh wearing a large kilt. He was a very fat man. And pink leggings <laughs> under underneath it to be a bit more seemly. And there was a kind of wave of popularity, a sensation for Scottish things. So the Scottish music, the dress, the Gaelic, the stories of Jacobite forebears, all of this had been suppressed and shameful for generations, and it suddenly reversed and became the height of fashion. A lot of this, as any Scot will tell you, was due to Walter Scott. He's the one who created the romance of chivalry and knighthood in 19th century Britain and also the Jacobites and cast them as sort of in that tradition of, of the Crusades and chivalry. His first novel published, as I said, was Waverley. It was the first historical novel. And this great reversal where things that had been suppressed suddenly were celebrated was possible in large part because, at least I would argue, mainly because Jacobitism was no longer a political threat. There was no longer any viable alternative claimant to the throne. The Catholic Stuart line had basically died out. Charles Edward Stuart was long gone. And Scotland had been pacified. Like so many restive rural regions of Europe, it had been pacified. So what had once been a real political problem and a thorn in the side of British power was now a sort of scenic getaway. And you see a wave of, the first kind of wave of tourism to Scotland, where you have increasingly wealthy English people traveling, going hunting and fishing in Scotland, getting summer homes. 
And this is ratified most of all when Queen Victoria and her husband visit Scotland repeatedly in the 1840s and praise the beauty, the rustic uh, charm. They at one point get lost in the area of Pitlochry in Perthshire, right in the middle of Scotland. And this makes Pitlochry a fashionable vacation spot. And the town especially booms after the railroad goes through Pitlochry, the railroad connecting Edinburgh to Inverness passes Pitlochry and it becomes a sort of spa town, a place to go and uh, bathe and fish and enjoy the whiskey. And if you go to Pitlochry today, as we did, you see romantic Victorian buildings everywhere. It was just a small cluster of hamlets before Victoria, and then it became this this sort of uh, romantic vacation spot full of turreted and gabled Victorian stone buildings. Now, this brought money into Scotland, and there were many benefits, of course, but it also led to land use disputes. So traditionally, under Scottish law, there's no notion of trespass. Anybody can go wherever they want, as long as they're not damaging someone's property or interfering in business, they can go anywhere. And this caused a problem when these English buyers bought up tracts of land and tried to close them with barbed wire and uh, threaten people with dogs or guns. And it led to a long series of conflicts and skirmishes over who has access to land. And actually small farmers called crofters began the first sort of resistance movement in the late Victorian era, trying to fight back against this encroachment on their traditional use of land. So Scotland, again, is divided along various lines. And on the one hand, Scots become very patriotic Britons. They serve in imperial wars. They serve very proudly in both of the two world wars. And there's an intense feeling of attachment to Britain and Britain's stand against fascism. At the same time, there's a growing resistance movement, especially among rural Scots, over these questions of control over land, and also over concern over the decline of Gaelic and the the gradual erosion of the traditional Scottish way of life. Uh, So this inflames lingering national feelings. And there's resentment against English people often seeing Scotland as a kind of backyard, a sort of scenic place for them to go and have fun, and not treating it as a real country with real problems. So this Scottish separatist movement, it begins over these rural questions, and then it also spreads to urban areas, to places that are facing poverty, especially in the Great Depression, that see themselves as neglected by the Westminster government. And the Scottish National Party, a party calling for independence, is founded in 1934. This party grows very slowly, especially among the urban working class and the young And it's further vaulted to the fore in the 1970s when oil is discovered in the North Sea. uh, And there are disputes and disagreements over exactly how much oil there is and how it should be used. This divide is deepened in the 80s under the Thatcher government when the government shuts down many important industries in Scotland, such as the coal mines, and when social welfare practices are cut back, and then finally the community charge or poll tax is first instituted in Scotland before England. So all of these controversies from the Thatcher period further bolster 
this growing national movement. The Scottish national movement successfully gets the establishment of a Scottish national parliament in 1999, which has certain limited internal powers. The SNP wins a majority in the Scottish national parliament in 2012, and they enter into negotiations with the Westminster government and agree to hold a referendum in 2014. This referendum had only two options, should Scotland be an independent country, yes or no. There was no third middle option of more autonomy within the UK, and many Scots were upset about this, including one of the tour guides uh, who, who said he, he voted for independence, even though what he really wanted was that middle third option. The Cameron government had agreed to the referendum largely because they thought there was no way independence would ever pass, and this would simply put the idea to bed permanently. But instead, the polls became very close, and ultimately the vote ended up being 45% for independence, 55 against. So it was not quite enough of a landslide to put the idea to bed, and activists who supported independence and who voted yes in the referendum have come to call themselves 45ers in this sort of double reference, both to the 1745 uprising and the 45% that voted yes in the referendum. The following year, the Scottish National Party won 56 out of the 59 Scottish seats in the UK Parliament, so almost completely swept Scotland's delegation to the Westminster Parliament. And so this was a remarkable new show of strength for the SNP and the national movement. However, two years later in 2017, they lost some of those seats and were set back to only 35. So we still see the SNP as the largest, most popular party in Scotland. But it's hard to say whether they'll be able to build a majority at any point, and it's hard to say how strong the movement is for independence and whether it will continue to grow or if it's already crested. Okay, so in light of this history, what do we make then of Outlander and of its strange echoes of Waverley? Well, the similarities between the two, I don't think are simply coincidental. I think that they stem from a similar sense, a similar message that both Walter Scott and Diana Gabaldon and the makers of Outlander are trying to take from this piece of Scottish history. And it's mainly a feeling of ambivalence, a feeling of being torn, of being torn between countries, between political loyalties, between eras and identities. And this ambivalence and inner conflict is symbolized in part by being torn between two lovers and two marriage partners. And in, in Waverly, of course, that's Rose Bradwardine from the sort of respectable Lowland family and Flora McIvor. And in Outlander, it's between the main character Claire's existing husband, Frank, an English historian, and the idealized, uh, charming, dashing, strapping young Highlander, Jamie Fraser. You can see this in for one thing, the, the title of Waverly. So the name Waverly was made up. It's not a real English family name. And it's clearly a play on the word waver, 
to waver back and forth. And there's even a scene where Walter Scott makes this very obvious, where a newspaper reports on the Waverly family's supposed Jacobite leanings, which turn out to be real. All members of the Waverly family ultimately in some way make some deal to support the Catholic Stuarts. And the estate that Everard Waverly owns is called Waverly Honor. So this newspaper sort of uh, in, in a cute pun says uh, there are many examples of the wavering honor of Waverly Honor. And the whole plot line of Waverly can be seen as a young English person being drawn away into a different life, a different vision of himself, and then having to give that up and come back. So in this way, Waverly is sort of a tragedy. And indeed, the, the sort of real romantic hero of the story is the head of Clan MacIvor, Fergus MacIvor, who dies for the cause, is ultimately executed for the cause. And it's a sort of tragedy saying this old Highland way of life that we're losing is wonderful and it has its appeal, but it, it's been consigned to oblivion. It's, it's been lost to history. There is, in a way, no going back. And Outlander, I think, forcibly reopens that door. And it does it... I'll, well, I'll talk, <laughs> I'll talk later in a minute about how, how they do that. So the first obvious difference between the two, which I already mentioned, is the reversal of sexes. In Outlander, we have a strong, decisive woman. She was a wartime nurse. She is unflappable. Uh, courageous. She's a smart aleck. She's not afraid to correct men. She's skilled and confident. And she, in all of these ways, is a perfect modern woman. In the same way that Jamie is this sort of perfect, idealized, traditional Highland man, this, this you know, perfect love object who's, who's brave and funny and chivalrous, but has a little bit of a dirty sense of humor and is also in his late 20s and somehow is a virgin, <laughs> for some unexplained reason is a virgin. Uh, Claire is this kind of perfect modern woman, savvy, knowledgeable, unfazed by danger, but also feminine. And she gets to go through this Edward Waverly journey from the point of view of a modern woman. And the way this is pulled off is some sort of unexplained magic. That she goes to a standing stone circle and it somehow transports her through time and she lands up in 1743. Why do the stones do this? Why do they do this to her? Why is it this particular time that she ends up in 1743? Don't know. Maybe there's some explanation somewhere in the books that I haven't read. Maybe there's some explanation coming we haven't seen yet. But as of yet, it's just, uh, it's just this device thrown in to the middle of the story. And part of what's so bizarre is that no other magic, no other discernible magic seems to show up anywhere else. Everything else seems to be perfectly naturalistic, as far as we can tell. And this is just a, a strange contrast, I, uh, contradiction, I think, in the story. But in a way, the writers also use it at some moments to their advantage in really interesting ways. And I'll, I'll get to that. Now, another difference is the political context. As I said, Waverly was safe 
It was at a time when Jacobitism was no longer a significant political problem, and so it was okay to romanticize this kind of lost cause. With Outlander, the situation is a bit different. Okay, Jacobitism is not on the menu, but Scottish independence is. It's a real, live political issue again. And so all of this Scottish mythology is coming in some way back into play. I think that this story could not have been written or made by Britons. It's simply too fraught. And so it's not surprising in this way that it's actually written by an American. Diana Gabaldon is from Flagstaff, Arizona. She has no particular connection to Scotland. She is from English and Mexican descent, Mexican-American descent. She's a Roman Catholic. She also is a scientist. She has a long career as a biologist, and she was a founding editor of Science Software Quarterly. So she is a well-informed, well-educated modern woman. She started writing this novel on a lark, inspired in large part by a Scottish character in the long-running British science fiction television show, Doctor Who. <laughs> so this is, this is how this story began. And this can seem very strange to modern Scots. You know, one of them remarked repeatedly, it's, she's not even Scottish. <laughs> Why and how did she write this? But from another point of view, it, all, it makes more sense that she's not Scottish, that she is able to tap into real Scottish history. And most of the show, as far as I can see, is reasonably historically accurate, you know, other than the time travel thing. There are no glaring anachronisms. Nothing is totally wrong about the, the setup of the story. They have historical consultants, and she's done her research. It's, it's accurate enough for historical fiction, but she's able to tap into this mythos and exploit it in a really, I think, uninhibited way because she has nothing at stake because she has nothing at stake in the existence of the UK, the relationship between England and Scotland, and she has the freedom to do this, and so do the American networks and producers who made the show, like Ronald D. Moore. Now, you might say, okay, this is, this is a cute uh, historical fantasy romance. It couldn't possibly have any actual political significance. Surely that's overblowing it. But we do know, thanks to the Sony Studios hack in 2014, we did learn that actually the Prime Minister, David Cameron, secretly met with executives of Sony and persuaded them to delay the premiere of the show because he didn't want it airing while the Scottish independence referendum went on. Now, you might say that this was a little paranoid, that surely, you know, it wouldn't have made that much of a difference. And probably, you know, it would not have moved five percentage points in the polls. But it was politically sensitive enough that the powers that be in the UK government did take it seriously as a problem and did do something about it. I think one of the questions we should ask is, why did Sony give in? Why didn't they say, you know, shove it? We're airing whatever we want. Now, what was delayed in 2014 was just the first season, um, probably the first few episodes of the show. 
which do deal with Jacobitism and and sort of background talk about restoring the Stuarts. But it didn't get to what I think is really the most obvious political resonance of the show, where the writer actually makes it explicitly uh, political. And that's where the main character meets another young woman in the village named Galus Duncan, who is a sort of clever, cheeky manipulator who also is interested in sort of herbs and healing potions like our main character, Claire, and who seems, you know, a little mischievous, but maybe not anything too alarming. And Galus Duncan drops all sorts of hints that I completely did not pick up on, that she knows something that no one else does. And this is another spoiler, so I'm, I'm going to warn you, I'm going to talk about a reveal that happens later in the show. So don't listen to the rest if you don't want it spoiled. Galus Duncan ends up, not surprisingly, being accused as a witch. Now, this is a little bit historically inaccurate in that no formal witch trials could take place in Scotland after 1728, and, and they were... Even informal witch accusations were increasingly rare in the mid-1700s. So that is a little anachronistic. Probably no courtroom would have seriously entertained witch accusations at that time. But as a plot device, she's accused as a witch and questioned. She eventually is convicted and condemned. And when she's being dragged away to her execution... And I think the most striking and well-executed scene of the entire show, she turns back to Claire and shouts, 1968. And I, of course, am so dense, I did not get for a few moments. What is she saying? And you have to put it together, like Claire, the main character, does. You have to put it together. She's saying that she, too, came from the future, The year in which she passed through the portal is 1968, and she's asking Claire. She's saying, Claire, I know, I can tell that you also came from the future. What's your year? So part of why this is such a striking scene is that, as I said, there is no other hint of actual magic anywhere else in the show. All these the talks about demon possession and witchcraft all seem absurd and ridiculous to us as to the main character. And so we forget that, in fact, we're living in some alternate version of the world where things like magical time travel happen. You forget that that's the situation, and you are suddenly shockingly reminded of what you've forgotten when Galus Duncan shouts out 1968. And this is significant partly because... It, it shows us how much, I think, Outlander functions as a particular kind of fantasy for a particular kind of audience. It's sort of allowing people to escape into this alternate world of the past without really having to believe in magic, while still maintaining some kind of sensible modern skepticism. So it's revealed to us where Galus Duncan came from, at least broadly, that she came from the future. Later, Claire is able to pass back through the portal into her own present day, which is the 20th century. And she lives out much of the rest of her life in Britain until in the 1960s, she's traveling again in Scotland, and she encounters 
Galis Duncan. She has a different name. She's a Scottish housewife and writer. And not only that, but she is a Scottish independence activist. She's a sort of young agitator on college campuses, recruiting young people into the Scottish national movement. And at one point, she even leads her gathering in a chant of I am Bonnie Prince Charlie, in the sense of I am the sort of savior of Scotland and Scottish independence. So in this way, we can see the writers know that this fantasy of going back in time will be appealing to people, sometimes for political reasons. It's just that our main character, Claire, doesn't have any particular political motivation. And this is yet another way that we as the audience get to have it both ways. We get to indulge in the sort of romantic nationalist fantasy without having to, in a sense, declare our loyalties. Okay, so once more, why is there this similarity in outline between Outlander and Waverly, despite all of these differences in context? Well, I believe it's because Scotland has become symbolic. Scotland, in the eyes of Scots themselves and much of the rest of the world, is no longer just a country, a country with cities and rural areas and wild areas and an economy and a government. Scotland has become a symbol of everything that has been lost or everything that we believe we've lost in the world of commercialism, imperialism, industrialism, and in our modern lifestyle. And what are those things that we feel we've lost? Attachment to a place, attachment to small social groups, attachment to traditions across time, a sense of loyalty. These are the things that I think modern people believe that they are missing in their mobile, uprooted lives. And this is, I've talked about this before, like when I reviewed Douglas Murray's book. I've talked about this in my historical writing. This is an essential dilemma that people are always, I think, skirting around. You see it all the time in our entertainment, in our art, but people rarely are willing to come out and say it openly. Scotland can stand in for all kinds of small societies, regional, traditional societies that have lost their local traditions and languages and ways of life, and that people feel have been homogenized in mass consumer commercial world. There's a desire for identity, for commitment, for attachment, and for honor, for a sense of importance in the world based on your deeds. And there's a very important line, I think maybe the most important line in the entire show, is in an episode where Claire and a band of Jacobite fighters from her clan that she's married into are on the run from the British forces. And they hole up in a small country church and find themselves tra trapped and surrounded by their pursuers. And Claire proposes a scheme, you know, she's a, she's a clever schemer. She proposes a scheme to trade herself 
in return for letting the rest of the group go. So she effectively will hand herself over as a kind of hostage to the British forces in return for letting the other men go. And among them is her husband, the hero, Jamie Fraser. And the husband, of course, objects, you know, I won't let you do that. And she puts her foot down, as she often does. She puts her foot down and insists, am I not Lady Brachturach? Are these men not my responsibility? So she is asserting her responsibility and her honor of her new identity that she has taken up in this other world, in this world through the looking glass, so to speak. And I think that this fantasy, the fantasy of Outlander, is romantic not just in the sort of erotic sense. You know, it is, it is as my friends have said, a kilt lifter. But it also is a romance in a more expansive way. The fantasy of holding on to, somehow getting access to those old attachments, that sense of self and that sense of honor that people lack. But while at the same time still having the greater knowledge and savviness of modern people, you know, without the naivety. So it's sort of getting to have your cake and eat it too. Uh, identifying with Claire and her experiences. You get to have your cake and eat it too. And this romance, very significantly, is just as popular among men as it is among women. You know, I've been told, and it looks true from, from what I've seen, that this fan army of Outlander includes about equal numbers of men and women. So if there's any doubt that this is sort of the real resonance of Outlander, what its appeal is beyond the choreographed battle scenes and the good-looking stars, go back to the first episode. And in the very first scene where we actually see the main character, and the main character is on screen almost every scene through the whole show. I mean, I've said at times it really should be called the Catriona Balfe show since she, she is carrying almost every shot. But the first moment where we see her in the first episode She's not, you know, riding across a moor in the highlands. She's not stitching up wounds in a battle. But she is simply standing on a sidewalk looking through a shop window. It looks like probably a, a, an antique shop or vintage shop of some sort. She's looking at some ceramic pieces. And we hear her voice in voiceover say, quote, Strange the things you remember single images and feelings that stay with you down through the years. Like the moment I realized I'd never owned a vase. That I'd never lived in any place long enough to justify having such a simple thing. And how at that moment I wanted nothing so much in the world as to have a vase of my very own. So what I'm trying to say in this discussion of Outlander I'm not trying to tell you whether it's a good show or a bad show, and I'm not trying to tell you whether it's historically accurate or inaccurate. There are many other historians that are much more anal retentive than I who can deal with that. I'm trying to put it in historical context in order to understand what its appeal is and why I think it resonates with so many people, even apart from the sex appeal. And if we're aware of that, if we see the sort of needs and longings that I think this show is speaking to, then maybe we can go beyond simply enjoying it as a fantasy, 
but actually turn back and look at our own lives and see what we can do differently and how we can think differently as modern people. So thank you for listening. And if you want to hear more along these lines or hear another subject or anything you want to know about, I encourage you to email me at historiansplaining at gmail.com or comment on SoundCloud. And please go to my Patreon page and contribute whatever you can. And you will be able to hear patron-only materials, including my discussion of our travels in England. Thank you.